Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1211. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 18. This is being recorded on October 29th of the year 2021. Before we get into the main body of the program, several uh, key links. These are at the top of each For the Record Program description. I turn each uh, program description into a long each program, I should say, into a long written description to make it easier for people to follow this admittedly incredibly pedantic format. At the top of each for the record description and at the top of each food for thought post, there are links to do the following. One will enable you to subscribe to the very important comments that are made by listeners, most of them by our brilliant contributing editor named Tara Fractal and some by others. There's way too much going on for me to possibly cover it even in the 18 one-hour programs, and we're not quite finished with this series yet. For example, uh, in the last program, I mistakenly identified January 6th as January 27th. The milieu involved with the January 6th insurrection is the same milieu that is involved with the destabilization of China. People like Steve Bannon, uh, Guo Wang Wei, a.k.a. Miles Kwok, uh, Jake Kyle Bass, Tommy Hicks Jr., and others are also involved with the destabilization of China. And indeed, part of the, the election was stolen uh, meme uh, contends that uh, Chinese software was used to switch ballots, etc. It is the same milieu, arguably the epicenter of that being Steve Bannon. Uh, Tara Frackle has posted some very important and useful comments in that regard, and if you would like to subscribe to the comments, and I encourage people to do that, then the top of each program description and each uh, Food for Thought post has that link. Another link will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts of For the Record that are being made by Sister Station WFMU. So if podcasting is the best way for you to follow the program, then Sister Station WFMU is podcasting For the Record, and you can take advantage of that. The other link will enable you to obtain the 32 gigabyte flash drive with all of my life's work on it, uh, basically everything that's on the SpitfireList.com website, plus uh, including um, a, a mini library of old anti-fascist books on easy-to-download PDFs. I'm now on my 43rd year on the air. I don't get money from doing this program, and uh, I don't get money from the flash drive. Uh, again, I think we are, as a species and as a civilization, in our last go-round, and I can't encourage people strongly enough to get that flash drive. It is The, the latest iteration will be produced shortly. It will be up-to-date through uh, something like uh, for the record, 12.13 or 12.14. So, that, those are the links. Now, uh, we are wrapping this long series up, and I've been talking about how the uh, disposition of the U.S. Uh, and its interrelationship with Chiang Kai-shek's 
narco-fascist Kuomintang regime has not only set the template for U.S.-Asian policy or Far Eastern uh, policy, as it is alluded to in the passage we're about to uh, recap from the Sung Dynasty by Sterling Seagrave, uh, we are also talking about how uh, contemporary America was in many ways shaped by that experience and what took place after it. Uh, we have been talking about the Vietnam War, and we're going to uh, recap a brief passage from a fa- fabulous book that we have relied on for the bulk of the series. That book is called The Song Dynasty, S-O-O-N-G, by Sterling Seagrave, published in hardcover by Henry Holt and, Co- and Company. Actually, no, by um, not, not Henry Holt, Harper and Rowe and Company, and uh there is also a paperback edition, a an Amazon Kindle edition. Some people have claimed the book is still in print. Uh, I thought it was out of print, but certainly you can get it from various used book services. So please do so. Uh, the passage I alluded to refers to uh, an, an unfortunate individual named Stanley Hornbeck, S-T-A-N-L-E-Y is his first name, H-O-R-N-B-E-C-K, and he is described by Sterling Seagrave as follows. The man officially responsible for making U.S.-China policy, Stanley Hornbeck, the doyen of state's Far Eastern division, had only the most abbreviated and stilted knowledge of China, and had been out of touch personally for many years, and after talking about how his professional connections got him uh, put in charge of uh, a a U.S.-Asian policy described here. On this dubious basis, Hornbeck got a job as a lecturer on Asia at Harvard in the 20s, published another book that did not stand up to serious scrutiny, and parlayed the book and his Harvard position into an appointment in 1928 as Chief of Far Eastern Affairs at the Department of State. This incredible stroke of misfortune for the nation gave Hornbeck control of the flow of information from Foreign Service officers to policy planners at State and to the Presidential Cabinet. He withheld cables from the Secretary of State that were critical of Chiang Kai-shek and once stated that, quote, the United States... Far Eastern policy is like a train running on a railroad track. It has been clearly laid out, and where it is going is plain to all, unquote. I agree with that statement, though not in the uh, sense I think that Hornbeck uh, meant it. And Sterling Seagraves goes on to comment. It was, in fact, bound for Saigon in 1975, with whistle stops along the way at Peking, Komoi, Matsu, and the Yalu River. We have been talking about the whistle-stop in Saigon, i.e. the Vietnam War. That basically kicked in in a big way, although the U.S. financed something like 80% of the 
French uh, Indochina War, uh, the main U.S. involvement in what we now call the Vietnam War, uh, really began, it had begun with uh, a program of advisors and aid, but President Kennedy had sought to basically uh, derail the train or reroute the train from that uh, track that uh, Hornbeck alluded to in his metaphor, and he was in the process of pulling the U.S. out of Vietnam. That is one of the reasons he was killed. We've spoken about that in the Guns of November Part 3 in For the Record 978 and in the number of our interviews with Jim Biagemio in our landmark 25-hour series about his text, Destiny Betrayed. Uh, it was Kennedy's assassination that led to the escalation, the cancellation of the withdrawal, the scheduling of the 34A program of covert operations against North Vietnam, the air war against Vietnam, and finally U.S. involvement in what became the Vietnam War. Uh, we have spoken about how that really, uh, it, it, the killing of Kennedy in 63 was only 10 years after the end of the Korean War. And I think in many ways, not only Korea, but Vietnam was seen at Foggy Bottom in the state and also CIA and elsewhere as basically an expansion of uh, the what was seen as the crusade by Chiang Kai-shek against the Chinese communists and the Korean War on top of that, and then Vietnam on top of that, although the Vietnamese and the Chinese have a long history of uh, conflict going back centuries, long before the U.S. existed. Uh, the fact of the matter is, I think, not only ideology, but frankly anti-Asian racism and cultural stereotyping have a lot to do with us seeing uh, the Vietnamese communists and uh, Ho Chi Minh as basically an extension of Mao Zedong and the Chinese communists. So in a very real sense, uh, the Vietnam War could be seen indeed as a whistle stop along that railroad track that Stanley Hornbeck alluded to. It was Kennedy's assassination that kept that train on that track as he was attempting to divert that train from that track. Uh, one of the things we looked at in our last program was how Henry Luce's Time Incorporated and Life Magazine Incorporated became in many important ways America's eyes and ears on the assassination of JFK. Life Magazine in particular with its manipulation of the still frames from the Zapruder film, uh, its publication of a, a, a crudely doctored photo of Lee Harvey Oswald on the cover where uh, his body is leaning at a crazy angle and the shadow beneath his chin goes at a different angle from the other shadows in the photograph, obviously a physical impossibility. It was in many ways Henry Luce who was America's eyes and ears to a large extent, along with the Sung family and the uh, State Department of Stanley Hornbeck. Uh, he was the eyes and ears of America on Chiang Kai-shek, and he was the eyes and the ears in many ways for America on the assassination of JFK, which kept American-Asian policy running along that railroad track. And uh, I think... Uh, a book I would recommend emphatically, 
Uh, it is a disturbing book, whereas I, I'm a pretty tough SLB at this point in many ways. Um, if not calloused, I'm certainly acclimated to horror. Uh, I found this book very hard to read. It is extremely important. It, uh, is, I can't recommend it strongly enough, but it is brutally honest. That book is called Kill Anything That Moves, subtitled The Real American War in Vietnam. It is authored by Nick Purse, P-U-R-S-E, and published in the softcover by Picador Books, which is a subsidiary of Henry Holt and Company. We talked about that in our last program, and we're going to resume with some of the discussion overlapping certain elements. Uh, this is a remarkable book in that it doesn't pull any punches. It does talk about American racism vis-a-vis Asians, and it talks about the atrocities, the sexual abuse, uh, the massive use of firepower in an indiscriminate way, and yet it traces these policies to a technocratic approach initially taken by the Pentagon uh, and uh, an attempt at uh, basically regulating American war policy to where more enemy were being killed than the Vietnamese would be able to replace on the battlefield. That, in turn, led to a technocratic approach where body counts became uh, essentially primary. Uh, it talks about how American conscripts, young soldiers at any rate, many of them 18 or 19 years old, were basically reconditioned and re-socialized to kill, and uh, that not really, not, not in any way condemning them for what was really a reconditioning and re-socialization process inherent in basic training. The military commanders, in turn, who sought to not only manipulate public understanding of the war, but also who sought to uh, insulate their own professional career advancement from any inconvenience uh, that would be afforded by war crimes, court-martials, or inquiries, they basically worked to cover this up. Well, Nick Purse, after publishing this book, was approached by many Vietnam veterans who found the book basically brutally cathartic, and they shared many of their own uh, experiences, and it was a, a painful, although, again, for many of them, a healing experience to read the book. Uh, I think a, a very fair, and coming from a relatively conservative and national security-linked institution, uh, from the U.S. Naval Institute's publication, Proceedings. Speaking of kill anything that moves, by the way, that was the directive given to the troops at the My Lai Massacre. An important addition to Vietnam War studies, Truce's study is not anti-veteran, anti-military, or anti-American. It does not allege that the majority of U.S. military personnel in South Vietnam committed crimes. No, it doesn't, but it doesn't pull any punches. And as he notes, uh, it is probable that uh, the vast bulk of what took place will never really come to light. It was covered up. But uh, one of the things that we noted in for the record 1142, and we came back to this in uh, this series, 
And that is the momentum that carried over from World War II and the Sino-Japanese War on up through the Chinese Civil War where thousands upon thousands of Japanese troops were kept under arms and used to fight the Japanese, a, 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 a tactic that was ideally suited, arguably, to uh, drive the Chinese people further into the arms of the Chinese Communist Party because the Japanese were hated. We also took a look at how Kadama Yoshio, a Japanese war criminal and one of the principal operatives of the Golden Lily operation, a major player in the world, pre-World War II, World War II, and post-World War II narcotics traffic. Uh, Kadama Yoshio, along with uh, the leader of the Korean Yakuza, was present with John Foster Dulles uh, on the eve of the breakout of the Korean War, which in turn helped to shore up the cartel system and uh, some of John Foster Dulles's and uh, Sullivan and Cromwell's clients in both Japan and Germany, who uh, basically ramped up uh, industrial production for the Korean War. As noted by Sterling Seagrave, in fact, uh, the MacArthur Library has yielded the information that thousands of Japanese and Korean Yakuza and World War II veterans uh, from Japan uh, fought in the Korean War posing as Korean soldiers. So there is a, as South Korean soldiers, there is a great deal of momentum from the World War II in Asia and the Sino-Japanese War on through the Korean War and going up to the Vietnam War as well. Nick Turris talks about this in Kill Anything That Moves. Aside from augmenting the body count statistics, free fire zones were also integral to another policy objective driving villages out of territory controlled by the National Liberation Front and in the areas controlled by the Saigon government. These efforts were commonly known as, quote, pacification, unquote, but their true aim was to depopulate the contested countryside. Quote, the people are like water and the army is like fish, unquote, Mao Zedong, the leader of the Chinese Communist Revolution, had famously written. American planners grasped his dictum and also studied the, quote, kill all, burn all, loot all, unquote, scorched earth campaigns that the Japanese army launched in rural China during the 1930s and early 1940s for lessons on how to drain the, quote, sea, unquote. Not surprisingly, the idea of forcing peasants out of their villages was embraced by civilian pacification officials and military officers alike. By the way, free fire zones were what the name implies. Uh, basically, uh, commanders, whether of infantry units, artillery, armor, armor air units, or naval uh, firepower offshore, uh, were basically able to fire more or less at will at any perceived target in this area, and they did that. What isn't mentioned here in this passage, but something we did note in uh, some of what we have studied from the Song Dynasty, although the Japanese tactic of uh, kill all, burn all, loot all, reaped uh, enormous destruction in China. It also uh, further drove the Chinese peasantry into the arms of the communists, and it had that uh, effect to a large extent in Vietnam as well. 
still more about uh, the reality of the Vietnam War. Again, from Kill Anything That Moves, subtitled The Real American War in Vietnam by Nick Purse, this was one of the most unfortunate, bloody, tragic stops on that train line that uh, Stanley Hornbeck alluded to. Ron Ridenauer, R-I-B-E-N-H-O-U-R, who later exposed the My Lai massacre based on accounts he collected from other soldiers, witnessed his share of atrocities firsthand while serving as a helicopter door gunner in Quang Nai province. On his first combat mission, Ridenauer saw the other door gunner on his chopper who had been instructed to fire in front of a fleeing and apparently unarmed Vietnamese accidentally shoot the man instead. The pilot got on the radio and called an officer on the ground to check out the wounded man. Quote, the officer gets there, runs up to him, unquote, Ridenauer recalled, again quoting, stops, leans down, looks at him, stands up, pulls out his forty-five, cocks it, boom, he shoots the guy in the head, unquote. At least six or seven times in his four-month span with the helicopter company, which lasted through April of 1968, Ridenauer saw similar scenes unfold below his hovering aircraft. Quote, We'd say, okay, here's someone who was looking suspicious or whatever, and some infantrymen would walk up to him and just shoot him. I mean, no provocation. I'm talking about murder, unquote. Over the course of those four months, Ridenauer's unit killed about 36 guerrillas. In the eight months prior, another unit had worked over the same area and claimed seven to 800 kills. What that said to me, unquote, Ridenauer recalled, since we were out doing the same thing, exactly the same thing and exactly the same area, was that they were just out there killing a lot of people. They were being a lot less discriminating than we were about who we were engaging. Unquote. What Ron Ridenauer witnessed from his helicopter and Jonathan Shell observed from a military plane, what Army medic Jamie Henry and Marine Lieutenant Philip Caputo saw on their patrols, what villagers like V.T. Huang and V.T. Noi lived through in their hamlets, that is the essence of what we should think of when we say the Vietnam War, unquote. While we have only fragmentary evidence about the full extent of civilian suffering in South Vietnam, enough similar accounts exist so that roughly the same story could have been told in a chapter about Binh Dinh province in the mid-1960s, Kien Wu province in the late 1960s, or Quang Tri province in the early 1970s, among others. The incidents in this chapter were unbearably commonplace throughout the conflict, and are unusual only in that they were reported in some form or recounted by eyewitnesses instead of vanishing entirely from the historical record. And uh, Nick Chris also notes the effect of racism in the bloody conduct of uh, large portions of uh, the U.S. contingent, either in-country per se or offshore, or operating in the air. Uh, many of the people who served in Vietnam or from the American Deep South, they are disproportionately represented in the officer corps and in the ranks, and indeed uh, what is referred to by some of the veterans of, that were interviewed by Nick Terse as the MGR, the mere gook 
rule was one of the factors contributing to the indiscriminate bloodletting. Uh, one of the many things that the soldiers did, U.S. soldiers did in Vietnam, was run down Vietnamese with uh, armored vehicles or jeeps or trucks, uh, more or less for the hell of it. They referred to it as, quote, gook hockey, unquote. And that is, in a sense, representative. One of the passages that talks about the uh, racism that uh, many Americans in Vietnam felt and the effect that that had upon the conduct of the war, uh, it is described or presented by Nick Terse as follows. About 90% of the Americans with whom I had contact in Vietnam, said Dr. Livingston, that's Major Gordon Livingston, a West Point graduate who served as regimental surgeon with the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. And he testified before Congress as follows, quote, Above 90% of the Americans with whom I had contact in Vietnam, said Dr. Livingston, treated the Vietnamese as subhuman and with, quote, merely universal contempt, unquote. To illustrate his point, Livingston told his listeners about a helicopter pilot who swooped down on two Vietnamese women riding bicycles and killed them with a helicopter skids. The pilot was temporarily grounded as the incident was being investigated, and Livingston spoke to him in his medical capacity. He found out that the man felt no remorse about the killings and only regretted not receiving his pay during the investigation. According to Livingston, a board of inquiry eventually cleared the pilot of any wrongdoing and allowed him to resume flying. Among those whom Livingston counted in the 90% who regarded the Vietnamese as subhuman was his commander, General George S. Patton III. Son of the famed World War II general of the same name, the younger Patton was known for his bloodthirsty attitude and the macabre souvenirs that he kept, including a Vietnamese skull that sat on his desk. He even carried it around at his end-of-tour farewell party. Of course, Patton was just one of many Americans who collected and displayed Vietnamese body parts. Given how contemptuously living Vietnamese were often treated by U.S. forces, it is not surprising that Vietnamese corpses were also often handled with little respect. And uh, one of the things, one of the points I think that is most important to understand about uh, not only this unfortunate stop on that uh, straight railway line that Stanley Hornbeck alluded to, a stop that President Kennedy attempted to divert. He attempted to divert the train from that railway line. He was killed because of it, and again, uh, the uh, America's eyes and ears to a large extent on Chiang Kai-shek and his narco-fascist regime, the loose Publishing Empire of Time Incorporated was in many ways the eyes and ears of America on the assassination of JFK, which permitted the train of policy in Asia to continue its straight run on that railway line. A very important point is made by Nick Terse here, and I'm going to expand on it, uh, talking about the Phoenix Program, a CIA-administered program of assassination in Vietnam, by the way, uh, a veteran of that program, uh, and the, a guy named the 
Roy Prosterman and the Rural Development Institute, which was part of that program and has since been uh, privatized, was part of Pierre Omidyar's, uh, quote, philanthropic, unquote, program in India, uh, as we've looked at in uh, com- uh, Compendium on Citizen Omidyar. I believe that's for the record 887. The Phoenix program, uh, perhaps best chronicled by the brilliant Douglas Valentine in the book of the same name, was again an assassination program in Vietnam administered primarily by the CIA. It was an expansion in many ways of American policy in Vietnam. And one of the things that I think is worth noting is the effect of American Vietnam policy on America as a whole. The war was in many ways very unpopular, although not as unpopular as some people have made it out to be. There certainly was widespread protest against the Vietnam War and some brutally honest coverage by the media of what was going on in Vietnam. This, in turn, not only led to changes in Pentagon policy vis-à-vis the media, in particular the embed, unquote, process of putting journalists in actual combat units, but there is a substantive amount of evidence that in order to win over hearts and minds to the Vietnam War, it became necessary to win over hearts and minds to the Vietnam War in the United States. And that uh, helped to foster a continuation and acceleration of covert operations in the U.S. proper, including, as we've looked at in the book to which we will return briefly, uh, the book Chaos by uh, Tom O'Neill, a brilliant, brilliant book, a very important book, something we've looked at in, uh, for the record, program number uh, 1000. 85. Uh, we came back to it for the record 11, 63, 64, and 65 as well. Uh, Douglas Valentine talks about the Phoenix program, how it was in its own way a logical extension of American policy in Vietnam, and I would submit that in many ways the effect of the Vietnam War was to expand on the Phoenix program and the necessity uh, of of uh, controlling, quote, hurts and minds in the U.S. proper. And in this regard, I think the straight railway line alluded to by Stanley Hornbeck goes right through the middle of the American heartland. Heartland, by the way, being the title of the late Mort Saul's autobiography. Mort Saul, the, the brilliant stand-up comedian, a pioneer in that regard, was also an investigator for Jim Garrison in New Orleans, and that was one of the things that sabotaged his career. Uh, in Kill Anything That Moves, uh, Nick Purse writes, Phoenix was a program run amok, but it was also the logical result of a military campaign driven by the body count and run under the precept of the mere gook rule. For the Vietnamese, the American war was an endless gauntlet of potential calamities. Killed for the sake of a bounty or shot in the garbage dump, forced into prostitution or gang raped by GIs, run down for sport on a roadway, or locked away in a jail to be tortured without the benefit of a trial, the range of disasters was nearly endless. While no exact figures are available, 
there can be little question that such events occurred in shocking numbers. They were the very essence of the war, crimes that went on all the time all over South Vietnam for years and years. When you consider this, along with the tallies of dead, wounded, and displaced, the scale of the suffering becomes almost unimaginable, almost as unimaginable as the fact that somehow, in the United States, all that suffering was more or less ignored as it happened, and then written out of history even more thoroughly in the decades since. Uh, indeed. And uh, we're going to backtrack uh, a bit in time. Uh, Stanley Hornbeck uh, made an allusion, actually not Stanley Hornbeck, but uh, Sterling Seagrave in that passage uh, about Stanley Hornbeck. Hornbeck uh, characterized, quote, the United States Far Eastern policy is like a train running on a railroad track. It has been clearly laid out, and where it is going is plain to all, in fact. And Sterling Seagrave goes on to note, it was, in fact, bound for Saigon in 1975, with whistle stops along the way at Peking, Kumwai Matsu, and the Yalu River. Of the reference to the Yalu River, that is the river that is the boundary between China and North Vietnam. And as I've spoken about before, and I have to uh, you know, just synopsize this, uh, Douglas MacArthur, who was in charge of military forces in Korea, as he approached uh, the border between China and uh, North, what was then North Korea, was told basically not to get near the Yalu River. He was warned by military intelligence officers that if he did, China would enter the war. Well, he disregarded their advice, did what they warned him not to do, and what they warned about happened. China did indeed enter the war and routed the U.S. forces in the northern part of what was then North Korea. Uh, they, the uh, Allied forces in the area of the Chosin Reservoir were overwhelmed. There was a famous battle uh, in America, in, uh, named in America the Battle of Chosin Reservoir. And the Chinese forces that uh, swarmed into North Korea routed the UN forces. In the record program numbers 1171, 1172, and 1173, called The Missing Chapter, parts 1, 2, and 3, we looked at a very important and I think very informing chapter from one of the very best books about Unit 731. Unit 731 was the Japanese Biological Warfare Unit uh, prior to and during World War II that had some of the most advanced techniques, and some of those techniques were developed by using human subjects as uh, experimental guinea pigs and, uh, well, not cannon fiber exactly, but bacteria fiber. POWs were killed en masse as a result of that program, including American POWs who were experimented on, uh, often with lethal results. That, however, did not prevent the U.S. from not only incorporating the files of Unit 731, but using some of their personnel as well. Uh, 
It had long been a contention by the Chinese and North Koreans that the U.S. had practiced biological warfare in the Korean War. That continues to be denied by the U.S. to this day. And it was because of the confessions by captured U.S. Uh, Air Force pilots who testified uh, that they, in fact, had been performing biological warfare missions against the Chinese and North Koreans, that the U.S. developed its mind control programs. The contention was that the only way that they these captured airmen would have uh, testified to the effect that they did was if they had been, quote, brainwashed, unquote. That was the rationale for the U.S. development of the insidious mind control programs MKUltra, MKNaomi, MKBluber, etc. And we looked at those in many programs, for the record program numbers, uh, or AFA programs 5, 6, and 7. We came back to it in uh, AFA program number 9. And we looked at it in many for the record programs as well, including 1085, and 1171, 1172, and 1173. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about uh, L. Jolly West or Lewis Jolly and West in just a moment. But uh, I was researching Unit 731. There was a very good book about that called Unit 731 by... Uh, David Wallace and Peter Williams, I believe the authors were. It was published in hardcover by Harder and Stoughton in the UK. However, the American edition, which is still excellent and worth worth, uh, reading, left out an entire chapter that is in the British edition. As the brilliant Berkeley researcher Peter Dale Scott noted, the cover-up obviates the conspiracy. And that missing chapter, again chronicled in the aforementioned programs for the record 1171, 1172, and 1173, presents some very convincing evidence that not only did the U.S. uh, practice biological warfare against uh, North Korea and China, but they basically were using the techniques and some of the personnel that had been developed by Unit 731 in China. One of the things that Unit 731 did was to uh, launch biological warfare attacks against supply routes, and that appears to have been done uh, in response to the routing of UN forces uh, as they approached the Yalu River. And uh, in the missing chapter, I pointedly avoided the material dealing with the testimony of the captured pilots. The authors are very circumspect, and they note that they, the testimony may have been coerced or influenced. They also note that the uh, recanting of that testimony may also have been coerced or influenced. However, in the interest of objectivity, I simply reported about the information that the International Scientific Commission, or ISC, reported in the chapter, and uh, reporting some of that here, and this again from the book Unit 731 by Peter Wallace and um, David Williams, and uh, that uh, Peter Williams and David Wallace, excuse me, hardcover, uh, Harbor and Stoughton, uh, and copyright 1989. 
And uh, one of the things we noted in for the record programs, numbers 1171, 2, and 3, actually 1171 and 1172, and that was the composition of the International Scientific Commission. And it was as follows, uh, again, in the chapter that was omitted from the American edition of Unit 731 by Williams and Wallace, Dr. Andrea Andrean, A-N-D-R-E-E-N, director of the Central Laboratory of the Hospitals Board of the City of Stockholm, Jean Malter, M-A-L-T-E-R-R-E, Ingenieur Agricole, director of the Central Laboratory of Animal Physiology, National College of Agriculture, Grignon, France. Dr. Oliviero Olivo, Professor of Human Anatomy in the Faculty of Medicine of the University of Bologna, Italy. Dr. Samuel Pessoa, Professor of Parapsychology at the University of San Paolo and formerly Director of Public Health for the State of San Paolo in Brazil. Dr. Nikolai Zhukov, Dr. Nikolai Zhukov-Rezhnikov, Professor of Bacteriology at and Vice President of the Soviet Academy of Medicine and formerly chief medical expert at the Khabarovsk trial. That was one of the war crimes trial that the Soviet Union had of, uh, of the Unit 731 personnel. Continuing. And finally, Dr. Joseph Meebham, M-E-E-B-H-A-M, F-R-S, Sir William Dunn, reader in biochemistry, Cambridge University, formerly scientific counselor for Britannic Majesty's Embassy, Chongqing, and later director of the Department of Natural Sciences at UNESCO. He became, in 1966, the Master of Gonville and Caius College, Cambridge, and as of 1989, and is currently writing a history of science and civilization in China. Again, only one of those was uh, a, quote, communist, unquote, official, uh, Dr. Nikolai Zhukov-Rezhnikov, and it is a very credentialed and credible academic body. Uh, the claim was uh, that during the Cold War that, well, you can't believe what comes out of the commies. I think there is a very, I wouldn't call it an echo, but almost an extension of that in the debate about the lab leak hypothesis. And we'll get to, to more about that uh, when we update our series on the Oswald Institute of Virology. There was a, a glimpse in, in an article from... Uh, the Wall Street Journal of all papers, uh, it alluded to uh, pressure by China to get the WHO to investigate Fort Detrick, as well as alleged uh, detection of uh, SARS-CoV-2 in both Spain and Italy. And it said uh, dozens of countries whose governments are aligned with Peking. I mean, that that... Dozens of countries, we've heard nothing about that in the U.S. And one of the most important things to get from this long series we're doing, and that is to understand how flawed our view of the world is because of the twisting of the history and the actual reportage on what has taken place and what is taking place in China. A very long story made very short. If you take a look up at the sum, it looks for all the world, like the sun is traveling around the earth, moving from one horizon to another. If you stand at the beach and look out at the horizon, it looks like the world is flat. But in fact, the sun stays in one place and the earth turns, and that's why the sun transits through the sky, and we just haven't got a broad enough perspective to see the curve of the earth. Even though it looks that way, that's not the way things are. And in with regard to political events, we are dependent on our media. One of the most important aspects of the aforementioned 25-part 
series of interviews with Jim Eugenio concerns the role of the media in the assassination of JFK. They weren't just spinning the results. They were actual accessories after the fact to first-degree murder and treason. It, 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 it just is amazing to see how our media behave. And we have a glimpse of that in our last program as we saw how C.B. Jackson and uh, Henry Luce and Time Incorporated helped to cover up the assassination of JFK and twist the results of the Zapruder film. Uh, because of the testimony of the captured flyers in uh, China, uh, the American mind control programs were developed, and uh, initially, uh, primary responsibility for the delivery of biological warfare weapons was with the Air Force. And I don't think it is in any way uh, a coincidence that the one of the very first victims of mind control in the U.S. was an unfortunate fellow named Jimmy Shaver. Jimmy Shaver was an airman at uh, Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. And as we looked at in For the Record program, uh, programs, uh, I guess we talked about Shaver in uh, For the Record program number 1,000, 1165, and came back to it again in for the record 1172. To make a very long story very short, as chronicled in the brilliant and consummately important book Chaos by Tom O'Neill, Jimmy Shaver was either hypno-programmed to actually commit the rape and murder of a three-year-old girl named Sherry Horton, or was hypno-programmed to take responsibility for the murder committed, in fact, by someone else. But in any event, he did not commit that crime, and yet he was programmed to take a responsibility for it, or perhaps to do it himself, and was then executed. And the, pe- the gentleman involved with the apparent programming was Dr. Lewis Jolyon West, uh, reviewing from Chaos by Tom O'Neill, speaking of Jimmy Shaver. He was shirtless, covered in blood and scratches. Making no attempt to escape, he let the search party walk him to the edge of the highway. Bystanders described him as, quote, dazed, unquote, and trance-like, unquote. And he had apparently no awareness of uh, what had happened with the con. Quote, what's going on here, he asked. He didn't seem drunk, but he couldn't say where he was, how he'd gotten there, or whose blood was all over him. Meanwhile, the search party found Sherry Horton's Bobby in the gravel pit. Her neck was broken, her legs had been torn open, and she had been raped, unquote. Again, quoting, around four that morning... An Air Force Marshal questioned Shaver and two doctors examined him, agreeing that he wasn't drunk. One later testified that he, quote, was not normal. He was very composed outside, which I did not expect him to be under these circumstances, unquote. When his own wife came to visit him in the jail cell, he didn't recognize her, quote. When his wife came to visit, he didn't recognize her, unquote. And initially, he believed someone else committed the crime. He gave his first statement at 10.30 a.m., adamant that another man was responsible. He could summon an image of a stranger with blonde hair and tattoos. 
And eventually, however, he did sign a statement taking responsibility. After the Air Force Marshal returned to the jailhouse, however, Schaefer signed a second statement taking full responsibility. Though he still didn't remember anything, he reasoned that he must have done it, unquote. And uh, then Louis Jolyon West enters. Two months later in September, Schaefer's memories still hadn't returned. The base hospital commander told Jolly West to perform an evaluation. Was he legally sane at the time of the murder? Shaver spent the next two weeks under West's supervision. While Shaver was under, with West injecting more truth serum to deepen the trance, unquote, Shaver recalled the events of that night. He confessed to killing Horton. And West was a defense witness and instead appeared to have aided the prosecution. Again, quoting from Chaos by Tom O'Neill. At the trial, West argued that Shaver's truth serum confession was more valid than any other. And West was testifying for the defense. And uh, uh, Shaver's behavior at the trial was further suggestive of mind control. One newspaper account said he, quote, sat through the strenuous sessions like a man in a trance, saying nothing, never rising to stretch or smoke, though he was a known chain smoker. Quote, some believe it's an act, the paper said. Others believe his demeanor is real. And uh, tellingly, uh, Shaver's medical records at Lackland Air Force Base disappeared after the trial. Quote, but curiously, all the records for patients in 1954 had been maintained, with one exception. The file for last names beginning with S.A. through S.P. had vanished. Obviously, that would include S.H. Shaver. Note, too, that this was in 1954, in the immediate aftermath of the Korean War. And uh, it's worth noting that Shaver had been posed leading questions by Jolly West. West had used leading questions to walk the entranced Shaver through the crime. Quote, Tell me about when you took her clothes off, Jimmy. Uh, excuse me. Tell me about when you took your clothes off, Jimmy, he said. And trying to prove that Shaver had repressed memories. Jimmy, do you remember when something like this happened before? Or after you took her clothes off, what did you do? I never did take her clothes off, unquote, Shaver said. And note that the interview was not recorded in its entirety. A large section was left out. Again, quoting from Chaos by Tom O'Neill. The interview with Shaver was divided into thirds. The middle third, for some reason, wasn't recorded. When the record picked up, the manuscript said, quote, Shaver is crying. He has been confronted with all the facts, repeatedly. And that, again, from a just brilliant, very important book, Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA and the Secret History of the Sixties by Tom O'Neill, published in hardcover by Little Brown and Company. Again, I, I, as I said before, I think Tom O'Neill's 
conduct as a journalist was exemplary. He was not an investigative reporter. He was a showbiz writer. But over a 20-year investigation, despite uh, the bends in the road and uh, encountering material that he knew could get him lambasted as a, quote, conspiracy theorist, i.e. a deranged nut, he continued uh, on that track and forming his editors, you know, I'm now dealing with the CIA, I'm now dealing with material related to the Kennedy assassination, and he did not uh, he was not deterred, and after a 20-year search, published this book, Consummately Important, Chaos, Charles Manson, The CIA and the Secret History of the 60s. And it appears that the what we have known as the Manson family and its depredations was a domestic intelligence operation and apparently part of a domestic phoenix program, if you will, again, uh, intended to win hearts and minds, uh, in, in a way, an extension in American domestic society of that straight train line that Stanley Hornbeck alluded to. And uh, get one of the most important things in this series is to come to understand uh, how we are being misled by our media. Uh, one of the things that we looked at in connection with the aforementioned Henry Luce, uh, again, who just lionized, uh, almost beatified, uh, Madame Chiang Kai-shek and his wife, sort of like uh, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Jesus Christ, uh, he characterized them in Life magazine, but also uh, published the uh, Dr. Zapruder film Frames, the world now waits to see whether China and its Generalissimo have the moral and material stamina to go on fighting Japan. Not many people have the courage to be a lost cause, unquote. And Chang's prospects are now worse than were ever those of the American Revolution's George Washington. Chiang Kai-shek has heretofore shown himself a man of remarkable courage and resolution. He proved, while kidnapped by communists at Xi'an two years ago, that he is not afraid of death. He is a converted Methodist who has now for solace the examples of tribulation in the Christian Bible. <laughs> Again, as Australian Seagrave goes on to note, Chang's only similarity to George Washington was false teeth. But in this pious campaign, he was portrayed as a heroic Christian soldier, holding the Bible in one hand while fighting off reds, and Japs with the other. Americans could not resist the appeal of a Christian underdog, particularly one who looked death in the eye and defied, quote, communists, unquote, at Xi'an. We talked about the Xi'an incident where Chiang Kai-shek was kidnapped by the young marshal General Yang and forced into a united front to uh, combine with the Chinese communists to fight the Japanese invaders. Chang's failure to do that was forecast correctly by T.V. Sung in the early 30s as a tactic that would ultimately drive the Chinese people into the arms of the communists, and that is indeed what wound up happening. Well, of course, the assist when, when you keep thousands of Chinese troops under arms to fight the communists during the Chinese Civil War, as chronicled by Fred Cook's The Nightmare Decade that we've used in uh, AFA-11. And uh, for the record program, uh, 1095, we came back to it in this series. Well, that is going to accelerate that enormously. We talked about how Chiang Kai-shek, and we'll continue this in our next series. We probably won't have time to complete it. But we've spoken about Chiang Kai-shek's uh, 
just almost unbelievable corruption completely throughout his administration. Uh, his military apparatus and Chang himself were front for the Green Gang. It was based on the narcotics traffic. They collaborated with the Japanese, and they stole everything they could get their hands on. They sold a lot of American loan lease material to the Japanese, so it was used to fight uh, American and Allied soldiers instead of aiding the World War II effort. And uh, again, Chang was just a murderous, drug-dealing fascist, uh, a bloodletter extraordinaire. Uh, one of the really well, grotesquely humorous aspects of Henry Luce's portrayal of Chiang Kai-shek as a, quote, Christian, unquote, is <laughs> some of the recreational practices he engaged in. I've noted in America's current very slanted uh, portrayal of China, uh, they're going, the American press is going out of their way to cite uh, imperfections vis-a-vis China and its attitude toward women. Uh, throughout Asia, women have traditionally had a subservient role. Even in uh, American, uh, Chinese-American families have experienced in this country, uh, the privileges of a firstborn son are manifest. Uh, China's making a tremendous amount of progress vis-a-vis women's rights, but like in many other Asian nations, uh, women are still very much struggling for equality. But the American press's citing of anything to bash China, including uh, flaws in Chinese policy vis-a-vis women, and again, as I said before, China is a fifth of the world's population. Is there injustice there? Of course. Is there corruption there? Of course. Are they making mistakes? Of course. It's a fifth of the world's population, and uh, you know this is real life. However, talking about Chiang Kai-shek, he was, along with his Green Gang boss, Tu Yuasheng, a patron of the Blue Villa and the uh, basic what the mixing calls the Red Light District of Shanghai. At the opposite end, reading now from the Song Dynasty by Sterling Seagrave, at the opposite end of the Shanghai social scale, Bigard Tu enjoyed visiting the famous Blue Villa and cruising the other Green Gang brothels in the Blue Chamber District with a young, ill-tempered bravo by the name of Chang Kai-shek. And uh, in the aforementioned uh, brothels, and again, Chang Kai-shek was noted to be a uh, patron with Tu Yuasheng of the Chinese brothels in the Blue District, uh, the women in that district were subjected to a brutal Chinese practice called foot binding. By the way, the Chinese communists basically put an end to this. But uh, we'll, we'll not have time to finish this, so I'll, I'll resume and uh, uh, overlap the discussion in our next program. Uh, Sterling Seagrave writes in the Song Dynasty, The Chinese brothels, almost without exception, were staffed by girls with bound feet the ideal being less than three inches long. These were objects of extraordinary sexual excitement and enjoyed a central role in any noisy evening. And we'll talk about what Shang Kai-shek and Big Two were uh, doing on those noisy evenings. The practice in a nutshell, we'll come back to the, quote, Golden Lotus reference in our conclusion Bound feet demonstrated the lengths to which a woman would go to make her daughter a desirable sexual object. Foot binding usually began at age four. 
a ten-foot-long, two-inch bandage was wrapped around the toes to force them in against the sole. Each day the bandage was tightened until the foot was folded under with only the big toe sticking out, a shape called the golden lotus, unquote, because it resembled a lotus pod with the petals removed. Flesh rotted off, flesh rotted and fell off, sometimes a toe or two, and the foot oozed pus until the process of deformation was complete after two years, at which point the feet were practically dead. Swaddled in exquisitely decorated silk boots, the feet were carefully hidden. It was commonplace for young Chinese rogues to go to great lengths to steal a maiden's tiny silk shoes, masturbate into them, and then return them to her intense embarrassment and humiliation. We'll talk about uh, Christian Chang and Tu Sheng and their uh, patronage of this kind of thing in our next program. However, we are all out of time. This concludes for the record program number 1211, The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 18. This is being recorded on October 29th of the year 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun. <laughs>